three. Then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice? You who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. And that time he will hide his face from them because of the evil they have done. This is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. Therefore, night will come over you without visions and darkness without divination. The sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners disgraced. They will all cover their faces because there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with the power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness, her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be ploughed like a field, Jerusalem, Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. Well, it's a great delight to be with you this afternoon and to take part in this series on the book of Micah. And uh, my sermon follows on from the great foundation laid by Natalie last Sunday. Uh, Now, let me explain about the new sheet. Uh, On that page is an outline of the sermon, which tells you where it's going and when it's likely to stop. (laughs) Though there are no guarantees about that. Uh, here is the text of, Malachi three, uh, of Micah 3 uh, and it's, it's laid out in a particular way which I'll explain in just a moment. And on the back are some other verses that I'll be quoting from during the sermon. So that, uh, that's, uh, if, if you haven't one of these, it'd be really good uh, and would be a help. Well, the title and challenge of the sermon is Embrace Justice, Do Not Despise It. I took the words Embrace Justice from verse 1 of Micah chapter 3 and Do Not Despise Justice from verse 9. Embrace Justice and Do Not Despise It. But before we head into the details of uh, Micah chapter 3, Just some things to remember. First, in Old Testament times, God's people were a nation, like other nations, like Australia is a nation. But once we get to the New Testament and onwards, God's people are a church, not a particular nation. And in fact, God's people 
uh, are found in lots of nations around the world. Indeed, the promise is that uh, those who gather around the Lamb will be from every tribe and language and nation and people. So what we are reading as God's words to God's people as a nation in the Old Testament, their first application is to God's people in the New Testament and in New Testament times, that is to the church rather than to nations in general. Do you understand that point? We should apply the words of the prophets to God's people in the Old Testament to God's people now. Now, as a matter of fact, uh, Peter in 1 Peter 2 says to the Christians, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. But they're not actually a nation like other nations, are they? He's using Old Testament language and saying, well, you're God's people and you're part of every nation, not a particular nation. So this means we should primarily apply the message of Micah to God's people today, but we can also find some application to nations in general, but we need to do this very carefully. If you want to find where the Bible talks directly, or God in the Bible talks directly to nations, which we could apply to nations today, Amos 1 has a wonderful critique of nations at war, Amos chapter 1. Revelation 18 has a wonderful critique of nations at peace, enjoying uh, wealth, luxury, oppression and injustice. But we shouldn't try and make the world hold to the standards of the church. That's called theonomy, uh, and some Christians try to do that in different places around the world. It's not a good thing to do. If someone says, let's go in for a bit of theonomy over a cup of coffee, you say, no, I don't think we want any theonomy here, thank you. So, for example, if I were a member of Parliament and the bill came before the Parliament for legalising brothels, what was I, as a Christian, do? I don't think brothels are a good idea. But I suppose I would think that legalising brothels is better than not legalising them because there's more protection for the sex workers. So I'd probably vote for legalising brothels, though I don't think it's a very good idea. And if at our annual general meeting of St Jude's in a few weeks' time there was a motion that St Jude's legalised brothels, I would probably vote against it. Sorry, that was a joke. <laughs> that is not coming to the AGM as far as I know. And if it did, I would not vote for it. I'm making the point that we can't uh, impose Christian standards on people who aren't Christians. And we cause a lot of trouble for ourselves when we try to do that. Next point, this is still the introduction, we haven't got to Micah yet, but Micah speaks God's words to communal sins of nations and church, not to individuals. Now, in our society, in the West in particular, we're trained to ask the question, what does this mean for me? But that's actually not the first question to ask when we're reading the Bible where God addresses God's people 
not individuals. To individualise it is to put too much pressure on ourselves and to neglect our responsibility for the community in which we live. This is true in thinking about the sins of churches as it is thinking about the sins of nations. Let me give you an example. Imagine we were doing a series in 1 John where there's a great emphasis on loving one another and the preacher up the front said, brothers and sisters, we must love one another. Well, if I individualised that message, I could sit in my seat and think, well, I'm doing my best to do that, so that's okay. But actually, the point of the message is it's for everybody in the church. So I must pray and encourage my fellow Christians so that everybody in the church loves everybody else in the church. That's what God's trying to achieve through that instruction in 1 John. Do you see the point? So seeing it as an instruction to a community is actually more demanding than seeing it just as an instruction to me as an individual. And if we individualise God's message to nations and churches, we are likely to overdose on individual guilt and paralyse ourselves because we're taking too much responsibility on ourselves as individuals. Well, what are some of the communal sins of churches? Uh, Selfishness, only concerned for the church and not the world. Injustice, favouring some people in the congregation and not others. Giving some people more power than others. Listening to men and not to women. Listening to the old timers and not to the newcomers. Ah. Another sin of churches is, you know, the old 80-20 rule that 20% of the people do all the work and 80% don't. Well, that happens in churches where some people do all the work and others don't. That's unjust, actually. It's not fair. Let's think about the communal sins of nations. Well, nations are naturally selfish, aren't they? In many nations of the world, there is corruption and injustice. There's racism, a gap between the rich and the poor, messing up the environment, failure to provide adequate health care, education, justice and equality. What about Australia? What are Australia's national sins? Well, our first one is racism, actually. The racism exercised against indigenous people, originally. The racism exercised against the Chinese people who came to Australia in the 19th century as miners. And there was an an extraordinary uh, event during the gold rush in the Buckland Valley where there were 6,000 miners, 2,000 of them were Chinese. 
And on one day, the 4,000 non-Chinese miners attacked the 2,000 Chinese miners and chased them out of the Buckland Valley. Racism is endemic in Australia, actually. Uh, Our treatment of indigenous people was was racist and our treatment of Chinese people in the 19th century was racist. And then we had the scandalous white Australia policy, the Immigration Restriction Act, which is a polite way of saying stay out, of 1901. It didn't actually mention the words white or race, but the parliamentary debates made it clear that it was a tool of racial exclusion, particularly Chinese and people from the Pacific Islands. And the, of course, the irony is it was called the White Australia Policy when many Australians, the original inhabitants, weren't white. So it just ignored them. It was very cleverly done. So uh, the way it worked was a, a, a dictation test and so you had to be able to write something in a European language. Well, one uh, Jewish communist arrived, uh, Egon Kish, and he was fluent in several European languages. But he was not allowed into Australia because he couldn't recite the Lord's Prayer in Scottish Gaelic. Could you? Res- I don't know the Lord's Prayer in Scottish Gaelic. And that racism is a deep sin in Australia still. Oh, we could mention alcohol, couldn't we? Abortion on demand, messing up the environment, treating other nations unjustly, getting reports and not acting on them. That's a classic Australian sin. Lack of political energy and sacrifice, serving money rather than God, entertainment rather than reality, domestic violence, and all the rest. And often, I'm sorry to say, churches copy the national sins, the sins of their nation. I remember visiting one (coughs) country overseas and uh, an old man said to me, uh, our politicians are corrupt, our judges are corrupt, and our journalists are corrupt. There is no hope for our country. Then I discovered... The church was corrupt as well. Well, that's what you would have in a nation which was corrupt. Third introductory point. There's a lot about judgment in Micah and that might make you uh, react against it. But what words of judgment do? They're actually words of mercy. They're actually God saying... Be careful of the consequences of what you do. And that's a lesson that parents teach us when we're young, that our actions have consequences. And sometimes the consequences are bad rather than good. Well, let me tell you, the consequences uh, that which are presented to God's people in the, the rough words of Micah actually worked. Here's a quotation, you'll find it on the back of the leaflet, from Jeremiah 26. Uh, Some of the elders of the land stepped forward, this is in the time of the prophet Jeremiah, and said to the entire assembly, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. 
He told all the people of Judah, this is what the Lord Almighty says, and it's the last verse of our text for tonight. Zion will be ploughed like a field, Jerusalem a heap of rubble, the temple mound a mound overgrown with thickets. Did not Hezekiah, that is, the king at the time, fear the Lord and seek his favour? And did not the Lord relent, so that he did not bring the disaster he pronounced against them? So Micah's prophecy actually worked, and the destruction of Jerusalem was delayed for about 130 years. That is, uh, God's words through Micah actually brought the king and the people to repentance. And so God didn't do at that time what he had warned them he would do. Well, let's look at uh, the chapter in more detail. Uh, In the new sheet, I've arranged it so you can see the the kind of shape of the chapter. First of all, uh, the prophet addresses the leaders and rulers of God's people. Then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice? But on the contrary... You who hate good and love evil. And then this gruesome description of uh, the rulers kind of cooking the people to eat. It wasn't actually what they did. This is poetic language in case you're wondering. It wasn't a a case of rampant cannibalism. uh, But it was saying, this is the way you're treating your people. You who hate good and love evil. and love evil who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones. Notice God's people who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin, break their bones in pieces, chop them up like meat in the pan, like flesh for the pot. And then the judgment that follows. Then they, that is the leader and rulers, right hand column, will cry out to the Lord but he will not answer them. At that time he'll hide his face from them because of the evil they have done. So God is certain not to answer their prayers because of the wicked way they are living. What a warning for prayers. And I can imagine them saying, well, God isn't answering our prayers, so he's let us down, so we'll desert him. But actually God not answering their prayers was their fault, not God's fault. Or the prophets, false prophets, tell of their own impressions, their own feelings, their own convictions, or they reflect their own society's values, but do not speak God's words. But these prophets were even worse. They were speaking for the highest bidder. They sold themselves and their ministry for money. Listen to this. This is what the Lord says, As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace, if they have something to eat. That is, if you feed them, you'll get the message you want. If you don't feed them, you won't. But prepare to wage war on anyone who refuses to feed them. Well, that is so gross, isn't it? For prophets who were meant to speak God's words to sell their message for money. And here's the judgment. Therefore, night will come over you 
without visions and darkness without divination. The sun will set for the prophets, the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed, the diviners disgraced. They'll all cover their faces because there is no answer from God. But in the midst of God speaking this truth, there is a ray of hope that is the ministry of Micah, the true prophet, verse 8. He is a wonderful sign of God's kindness and mercy. But as for me, Micah says, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. We often don't recognise it, but someone who speaks the truth to us about our lives is a wonderful gift of God. Fools reject warnings, wise people accept rebukes. But I find that Christians in Australia are not very good at accepting rebukes. I told the story this morning of uh, two friends of mine who were drinking in ministry, two friends of mine who are ministers, were drinking too much. So I said to them, you are drinking too much, stop it. That ended one friendship and chilled another friendship. Isn't that a pity? But do you rebuke or question your Christian friends? Or would that end the friendship? shows how fragile our friendships are if we're not able to suggest to a Christian friend that they're not living wisely or accept a question from them about our own lives. Proverbs makes it very clear that fools reject warnings and wise people accept rebukes. And how kind of God to send Micah with power with the spirit of the Lord, with justice and might, to rebuke Jacob, God's people, for transgression and sin. And then verses 8 to 12. Leaders, priests and prophets, you despise justice. Rather than embracing justice, you despise it. Listen to the list. Here you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Jerusalem with bloodshed and uh, sorry, Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness, her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Isn't that striking? It's all for money. A nation ruined by money. People who'll do anything for money. What a corrupt society that is. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. That's so sad, isn't it? That they felt secure 
because they were worshippers of God. They felt close to God and protected by God when their lives were so far from what God wanted. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be ploughed like a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill a mound overgrown by thickets. Oscar Wilde wrote that the cynic knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. The cynic knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And those rulers and those prophets and those priests knew the value of nothing but the price of success for themselves. So the message of the chapter is embrace justice, do not despise it. Notice the statements. You either embrace justice or you despise it. There's no neutral territory. You see, justice is not something you believe in, it's something you either do or ignore. Either embrace or despise is not worth your attention. It's like democracy. Democracy is not something you believe in, it's something you do, isn't it? You don't just stand around believing in democracy. No, you, you cast your vote, don't you? And think carefully before you vote about what would be good for the country. You talk to, to your friends about which way you're going to vote because you say, these issues are really important and democracy is such a privilege, we must, we must take it very seriously. And not just arrive at the, at, at, at the voting place thinking, well, it doesn't matter what I do. It matters what we do. Democracy brings responsibility. It's like marriage. You don't just believe in a marriage. You actually have to work at it, don't you? I believe I'm married, yes. There's the wife somewhere around here. Oh, there's a husband somewhere around here. It's not something you be believe in. It's something you do, isn't it? Like being part of a church. I believe I'm a member of St. Jude's. Well, do something about it. Get praying, get giving. Not just assenting to the theory, but pursuing the practice. Embrace justice is to, is to do it, it's to love it, it's to embrace it. What might it mean? Working for justice in the church. There is inequality in a church, injustice, when some people who have influence and others do not. Men have influence, women don't. Old-timers have influence, newcomers don't. One generation has influence, another doesn't. Or inequality, injustice, when a church uses resources which it should share with other churches or contribute to other churches. Well, I was a minister of a church not a long way from St. Jude's, and I used to spend a lot of time pondering whether uh, our investment in the church was justified, was just. That is, was the sufficient outcome in terms of our impact on the local community and our impact through the lives of our members on the world around them and our impact in taking the gospel to Australia and around the world? Did it actually justify the money we were spending? That's a question of justice, isn't it? 
It's unjust when some people work too hard for the church and others don't work hard enough. It's unjust when some people carry the burden of prayer and others don't bother. It's unjust when a church exists for its own internal life. It's a self-serving community and does not equip its people to serve in the wider community or pay its gospel debt to its community and the world. Or there's injustice when people employed by the church have low standards or conditions of employment or payment. I was teaching in Perth in uh, April, I think it was, and one young guy in the uh, class, a Bible college, came and said to me, look, I'm, I'm looking at a job in a church for next year and I just want some advice. So he talked about the job and so on. So I, I said, is there a contract? He said, there's no contract. I said, are there conditions of employment? There are no conditions of employment. Uh, is there a job description? No, there isn't a job description. And do you know to whom you'd be accountable? No, there's no indication of that. So I said, don't go near it. Because that's unjust and the church will eat you up and spit you out when something goes wrong. Dear God, we pray for justice in our churches and Christian organisations. We pray for justice in churches in Australia and churches around the world. Help all people in our churches to embrace justice and not despise it. But we should be working for justice in our nation and our world. So we work for justice by how we speak, what values what we commend, what values we work for, and how we try to influence public opinion. At home, at work, with our friends, in our local community. What causes we support for, work for, engage in and publicise. What injustices we protest against, talk about, write about, and pressure our politicians about. It's about loving our neighbour by embracing and pursuing justice. For there is no love without justice. Injustice is hate, not love. We have to, in Micah's words, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. We have to embrace justice and not despise it. But as I've been preparing this sermon, <laughs> I've been overwhelmed by the thought of all the injustice in the church and Christian organisations and all the injustice in the world. Just overwhelming, isn't it? And we can just feel paralysed by it. That's why it's so important to realise this is not addressed to us as individuals but as a church. So my advice is don't get paralysed by the overwhelming problem but take one issue and research it and focus on it and work on it and join a committee, whatever it is, or something like that, or form a committee to, to pressure governments to act on this particular, publicise the issue and push it as hard as you can. I've, I've done that with the indigenous uh, issue, issues of indigenous inequality uh, uh, for the last uh, 
15 years, I think, something like that. Uh, if, you, if you try and do everything, you'll just feel frustrated and not get anywhere. But uh, if, if you're working for justice in your local community, then get on with it and do it. And if you're working for justice in your employment situation, well, get on and do it. And if you're working on refugees or climate change or whatever it is, get on and do it with great energy and trust that other people are picking up other issues. Don't carry the whole world on your shoulder. It's too heavy. Oh, gracious God, we pray that you'd bring justice to this world and help us to embrace justice and work for it in our nation and our world and not despise it. But what about those who don't know that they will face God's justice? I think this is quite common, even within churches, because we often look for approval from people, not God's well done. And we often fear human rejection, but not God's perfect judgment. That is, we judge ourselves by other people, not thinking what God might think about what we're doing. But here's the text from 2 Corinthians 5. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. But we think, if I get away with it in this life, I've got away with it forever. But that's not true. And I must confess to you that there are sins I don't commit only because I fear the judgment seat of Christ. And that is a good fear, actually. You see, our lives matter, not just for this life, but for eternity. What we do now matters for eternity. What we don't do now matters for eternity. Our lives matter for eternity. We matter for eternity. And after death we all face the judgment seat of Christ. Gracious God, please sober our lives with the reminder that one day we all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And may this truth control us and humble us and transform us so that we look for your approval rather than the approval of those around us. But I'm sorry to say that there are those who won't find justice in this world. How will Cassius Turvey find justice in this world? How will his family find justice in this world? What can the courts do? Courts can't bring him back to life again, can they? But billions of people in our world, of course, face injustice every day. Those who are starving those who have no medical help, those who have no drinking water, those who are refugees. They're all suffering injustice. 
and you will suffer injustice one day if you haven't met it already. And if you're fighting injustice, and you should, but don't get it, then how can you escape eternal bitterness? The answer is by following the Lord Jesus who entrusted himself to him who judges justly, that is, to God. Gracious God, when we have fought for justice and failed to get it, please help us to follow the example of your son Jesus, who when he was suffering for us, entrusted himself to you, for you judge justly. But what of those who fear coming to the judgment seat of Christ? When you think of your life, you think, how could I appear before the judgment seat of Christ? Well, as we're called to embrace justice, you can embrace the forgiveness of God for your sins and embrace Christ as your saviour. Do you remember the thief on the cross, that criminal? Not a man of justice. He said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what is Jesus' gracious and powerful reply? Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Father, for those of us who feel frightened and fearful of you and of Christ's judgment seat, please give us confidence in your love and Christ's love and help us to embrace the forgiveness you offer through Christ and to embrace Christ our Saviour. Dear friends, I urge you, I beg you, I entreat you in the life of this church, embrace justice and do not despise it. In your local community and workplace, embrace justice and do not despise it. In this nation, embrace justice and do not despise it. In this world, embrace justice and do not despise it. And may God, the just judge of all people and all nations, bring his justice to this world and enable us to embrace justice and not despise it. For Christ's sake. Amen.